0: thank you. Um, It's great to be here with you at the 410 campus. It's great to be with you online as well. We're glad that you're here. Uh, If you had told me 10 years ago that I would one day preach an ordination sermon, I would have called you crazy. 10 years ago, uh, I was beginning my uh, college degree at the architecture school at UTSA. That's the direction that I thought my life was heading, toward a, a degree in architecture and design. But I'm grateful. Um, as I look back on my life, I realize that God's plans for me were better than my own. Um, and so it is a special thing to be here with you today. Wayside, I'm, I'm honored and I'm humbled and I'm grateful. And speaking of being grateful, I, I want to say thank you to you, my church. I, I know that my face might be new to some of you here um, since I've been ministering with our students at the Stone Oak Campus and with our college students um, but we 've been a part of Wayside for almost twenty years, so it is a pleasure to to minister to you and it is a privilege to minister alongside you and Also, I want to thank all of the the pastors and, and directors and the administrative staff and, and especially our leadership. Thank you for your, your love for me and for my family uh, and your, your grace and especially for your patience. Uh, I want to say thank you to my family, especially my parents, Mark and Cindy. Your support these past 29 years has been a firm foundation. And as a, a pastor and, and, and a father myself, I, I recognize how vitally important the love of parents are. So t- to my parents and also to Becca's parents, we say thank you for loving us so well. And I also want to thank my wife, Becca. Without you, I wouldn't be here. Seriously, this was all her idea in a way. So the first time that I approached Becca with the idea to go into full-time ministry, it was uh, right as we were about to get married, and uh, as you might imagine, that wasn't great timing. So a couple of years into our ministry, she came to me and she said, Cameron, I think, I, I think you're, I think you're, or a couple of years into our marriage, she said, I think you're supposed to go into ministry. I think that's what our family is supposed to do. And I said, seriously? And she said, yes, seriously. And so I said, okay. And then it took me three to four months to work up the courage to make that transition. And all that time, she was gently but firmly saying, I'm ready when you are. So Becca, thank you for your confidence and support. You are strong in many areas that I'm not. You've weathered so many challenges with grace and with strength. Uh, You're my best friend, and I love you. And the greatest privilege of my life is to journey through it with you uh, and to parent our boys, Noah and Judah. I love you guys, too. (laughs) Um, no, enough about me. Would you pray with me? Um, as we dive into our passage Our father Thank you for the great privilege it is here today to open your word and to uh, Discuss it with your people But father I pray that you would help me to get out of the way and god you would be heard I pray father that you would speak to us and that you would change our hearts God, no man is good enough to change hearts. Only you are. So would you do that here in our worship? We love you, God. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we turn to our passage today in Jonah chapter 4, I wanted to mention, I actually played uh, Jonah in first grade in a production of Jonah and the Whale. And yeah, there he is. Uh, He doesn't realize that he's never going to be taller than he is right there in that picture. I don't remember much about that play, but I, I do remember one huge inconsistency between the, pl- the play and, and what we find in our book. Uh, our play completely deleted Jonah chapter 4. Like, the Ninevites repented in chapter 3, and the curtain came down, and that was it. And I get it, right? So the, the version of Jonah's story that we find in the scriptures doesn't end like we might expect. It actually keeps going. So if you remove uh, chapter 4, you kind of have the, this perfect three-act story, right? So act 1, God says, go to Nineveh, cry out against that wicked city. And Jonah says, ha, no, I'm going to Tarshish. So God sends a storm and then a fish to capture the runaway prophet. Act 2, uh, Jonah repents in the belly of the fish, and God says, go, for real this time. And Jonah says, Okay. Act 3, Jonah goes, says to the Ninevites, in 40 days you're all going to die, and the Ninevites say, okay, we repent. And that's a great story. That's a great, compact, tight little story. So the question is, why then does Jonah, or the the author, include Jonah chapter 4? Why not wrap it up with a classic, and they all lived happily ever after? Because Jonah's story isn't a fairy tale. And it's not a myth either. No myth ends the way that Jonah's story does. Chapter 4 shows us that the neat and tidy three-act play is not the story of Jonah. So the question is, what is the story of Jonah? And why should we care? And I think those are two really important questions that chapter 4 asks us. So we're going to pursue an answer of those together in our time this morning. So let's jump in. For the sake of context, we'll begin by reading verse 10 of chapter 3, which says, When God saw their deeds, the Ninevites, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So Jonah preaches a one-sentence sermon in the city. Like, seriously, only eight words in our English text. And in chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And in response, the Ninevites turn from their wickedness, and so God relents, and he doesn't destroy the city. And if you're the prophet, that's got to be a great set of bragging rights, right? I mean, no other prophet in history has the repentance of the entire city of evil on his resume. I mean, can you imagine? Hi, I'm Jonah, the greatest prophet to ever live. And yet, what is Jonah's response? Chapter 4, verse 1 says, but it greatly displeased Jonah. Jonah. And he became angry. So Jonah's upset. And actually, this is more than upset. The Hebrew word that we translate, greatly displeased, comes with, uh, from the root word meaning evil or bad. In other words, what happened in Nineveh is evil in Jonah's eyes. So verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better for me than life. Now, for Jonah's original audience, until now they've only been able to guess at what's motivating Jonah throughout the story. So why wouldn't Jonah go to Nineveh in chapter 1? I don't know. Is it because he's afraid of the Ninevites? Is it because he's afraid of public speaking? Did he have a cruise to Tarshish plan that he just couldn't cancel? We don't know. But now, reading this, the cat's out of the bag. Why is Jonah not going to Nineveh? Because Jonah is, he hates the Ninevites. And because he knows God's gracious character. He says, I knew it. I knew it. I knew you would do this. This is why I ran in the first place, because, verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So this is a quotation, Jonah's quoting Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, and it's one of the most quoted and referenced passages in the entire Hebrew Bible. It's, and it's kind of like the John 3.16 is to us as believers in Jesus. It was baked into their culture as a continual reminder of God's grace to his people. But here, Jonah's throwing it back in God's face. He's saying, ha, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. You've always been like this. You've got an addiction to forgiveness, and that is what I cannot stand about you. So Jonah knows his theology. He knows who God is, and he knows what he's like. And that's why he's so angry. And yet, I think we need to remember who the Ninevites were. So Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, the seat of political and military power. And the Assyrians were the brutal oppressors of God's people. Okay? So uh, we might compare what God is asking Jonah to do with calling a Christian refugee from Syria to return and to preach the gospel to Isis. So before we give Jonah a hard time, we need to realize that what God is asking him to do is no easy task. Now, often we speak in, uh, of, when we speak of God's judgment, especially in our rapidly secularizing culture, people tend to get uncomfortable. right? So we tend to reject the idea of a God who has the power and the prerogative to call us out when we're wrong and then to punish us if we don't turn away from the wrongdoing. And yet... I think that our story shows today that some, like Jonah, will also reject God because of his desire to extend grace. So yes, Jonah looks ridiculous. He's arguing with the God of the universe about his gracious character, and that's silly. But my friends, how many of us struggle deeply with the very same thing? So through this story, the author is putting his finger on a profoundly troubling question. What about when God is gracious to your enemy? And here's the thing. Actually, God is really comfortable with this question. He doesn't shy away from it. So he flat out confronts Jonah and says in in verse four, do you have a good reason to be angry? So God is saying, yes, Jonah, you're right. You're right. That's who I am. I am a gracious and forgiving God. I've always been that way. I will always be that way. But who are you to have a problem with that? Are you right to have a problem with that? And what is Jonah's response to God's question? He totally ignores him. He just gives God the cold shoulder. And in the context of our story, that that sounds kind of ridiculous. I mean, ignoring the God of the universe? And yet, my friends, how many how many of us do the same in our own lives? Are we also tempted to walk away from God's piercing questions? Do we ignore them by reading only the parts of Scripture that tend to justify our worldview or make us feel good about ourselves? And what about when we hear a message of God's grace and the Spirit taps us on the shoulder saying, hey, aren't you harboring some bitterness? Ought you not to show grace just as grace has been shown to you? Shouldn't you forgive them just as you have been forgiven? But do we think, no, God, don't you realize that they voted for the wrong person? Or, no, God, don't you realize what she said about me behind my back? Or, no, God, don't you realize that because of what they did to me, my life will never, ever, ever be the same again? And I get it. I want to do what comes naturally to me, too, to hate my enemies. But, my friends, it is the way of our culture To hate and dismiss or cancel our enemies. Not so with us. As the people of Jesus, we love our enemies, hoping to win them over, not by anger and hate, but by grace. So brothers and sisters, God has a plan to make right what is wrong in the world, but he wants to do so by making enemies into friends. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 10, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. If this is the heart of our God, then who am I to hate? But Jonah ignores God's pointed question, and it says, verse 5, Then Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So why does Jonah stick around? Probably he's hoping that in some way, somehow the city's still going to end up being destroyed. So either he has a cynical view of the repentance of the Ninevites. Surely they're going to mess that up. Or he has a cynical view of God's grace. Surely God didn't mean that. So either way, the, the picture of Jonah continues to be unfathering, right? So think about it. Imagine this. He's sitting there watching, hoping to see the destruction of an entire city of people. He's hoping that somehow in 40 days, the city will be overthrown just as he had prophesied in chapter 3. But here's something interesting about this word that we translate overthrown or overturned in chapter 3, verse 4. It's, it's the Hebrew word hafa. And the most basic definition of hafak is simply to turn over. So often in the scriptures it's used to speak of overturning something in judgment, as in from a good situation to a bad one. But also in the scriptures, it can mean to overturn, it can be mean to be used overturned in a good way, as in from a bad situation to a good one. So when he announced these words, Jonah certainly meant that the city would be overturned in judgment, but ironically it's not. Jonah's prophecy comes true, right? Only not in the way that he intended. So the city was overturned according to the word of Jonah. But not in judgment. It was overturned in repentance. And Jonah is realizing that God has pulled a switcheroo on him. And he's thinking, that's not what I meant. I was hoping that they would fry. So... Would it have been righteous for God to overturn the city of Nineveh in judgment? Well, sure. The the Ninevites were wicked, awful people. And we don't have to take Jonah's word for it. We don't even have to take the Bible's word for it. You can go to the British Museum in London today and see carvings that once hung on the walls of Assyrian kings depicting what they did to their enemies. I won't tell you what's on those. You can go and look at them. But they're awful. These guys were as awful as you can imagine, and they were arrogant, too. They were so proud of their violence that they used it, I mean, can you imagine, as home decor. Look at what I did to that guy. And yet, is it righteous for God to overturn the city of Nineveh in repentance? Jonah doesn't think so. To him, God's grace was evil. So God is going to use another means to get Jonah's attention. Verse 6, it says, So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, Death is is better to me than life. So God gives this plant to Jonah for his comfort and his grace. And Jonah loves this plant. Like, seriously, what's up with the plant, Jonah? But then God takes it away. And how does Jonah respond? For the second time in this passage, he wants to die. But why? Why? Because Jonah has a problem with the way that God runs the world. Jonah thinks that God is a bad manager. And in asking God to take his life, he's saying, I can't stand to live in a world where you give and take away the way that you do. I can't stand to live in a world where you love my enemies like you do. I cannot stand to live in a world where you are in charge. So I was drawn to preach from Jonah today not just because I played him in a play in first grade but because I feel like in so many ways I am just like Jonah. So ten years ago I entered college and like Jonah I was furious with God. Now outwardly, not openly at the time I probably couldn't have even articulated a reason but as I look back on my life now I realized that much like Jonah, I was angry with God because he was not running the world and my life like I wanted him to. So in high school, I'd become a very angry and bitter person. And my whole life, I'd been a good kid, a rule follower. I was exactly the good Christian boy that I was supposed to be, in public at least. And because of that, I thought that God owed me. I thought he owed me popularity, happiness, and success. And instead, what I perceived was those who weren't the good kid rule followers were enjoying all of those things that I desperately wanted. And I, on the other hand, felt isolated and unhappy and alone and like a failure. So I started at UTSA with a huge chip on my shoulder. Most of my friends had gone off to college. And because of my self-righteous attitude... Many of the people that were in this secular architecture program I now perceived as a threat. So that bitterness towards others who looked, acted, voted, and believed differently than me had hardened into hate and indifference. I was suspicious of everyone. And as you might imagine, because of that, I was alone. And I was in a crisis. Because from my perspective, God was failing me. He'd left me alone to fend for myself. And I believed that he was the one guiding and directing my life. But that was my biggest complaint. I was furious with God because I could not stand the way that he was running my life. But by God's grace, my story didn't end there. And neither did Jonah. So let's pick it back up in verse 9. It says, then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, in which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? So once again, God is asking Jonah the same question. But this time, it's not about God's choice in dealing with the Ninevites. It's about his dealing with the plant. He says, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah responds, I have a good reason to be angry, even to death. Really, Jonah? So God responds saying, okay, Jonah, I see, I see there's a smidgen of compassion about you. You care about this plant, and that's wonderful. But what about the city, Jonah? Don't you understand that there value compared to the value of this plan is infinitely beyond measure should i not care about this city full of tens of thousands of people whom i made with my hands in my image so the text says that the city is full of one hundred twenty thousand people who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand and there's a couple of different ways that we can understand this phrase Firstly, it could indicate that God is talking about young, innocent children. And so what God is saying to Jonah is, Jonah, don't you realize if I, if I destroy the city, little kids are going to die too. The second possibility is that God is speaking of the entire city, saying that they don't understand good from bad or right from wrong. And it's important we understand he's not calling them innocent, okay? From, from chapter one, God called them wicked and he sent Jonah to hold them accountable. But what God is saying is, Jonah, they're so blinded by their sin that they don't know a better way. They don't have my law like you do. They don't have my words. When I sent them to you, Jonah, you gave them one sentence. You didn't tell them about me. You didn't tell them about my character. You didn't tell them about my righteousness. You didn't tell them about my grace. And yet they still turn from their wickedness. Do you want me to destroy them? And also, they're animals? And that's it. That's the end of the book of Jonah. The last word is animals. It ends on this question with no response from Jonah. And of course, we all want to know how Jonah responded to the question, but the text doesn't tell us. And that's because it's not the point. Jonah isn't the point. This question... This last sentence, in the absence of any response from Jonah, is the author's brilliant way of making sure that we don't miss the point. The point is, how will God's people respond to the very same question? How will we respond when we find out that God loves our enemies? How will we respond to a God who runs the world like he does? So I mentioned earlier... I responded to this question many ways by, for many years by being angry. I didn't like the way that God was running my life, so I, like Jonah, ran away from him. And the tragedy of Jonah's life is that he, like many of us, thought that by running from God, he would find what he was looking for. He thought that by following his own plan, his own way for his life, he would actually get life. And instead, he got death. As he was sinking to the depths after being hurled into the sea in chapter 2, he said, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weaves were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. So Jonah's plans for his life led to death. And hear me, he only realized it as he was staring death in the face. But then, in his grace, God provided a fish to save Jonah from death. And Jonah realizes in verse 6, he says, You, O Lord, have brought up my life from the pit. So if this morning you're being tempted to run from God, or you're wondering whether or not life in God's world is worth living at all, let me plead with you. Wait and listen and see the heart of our God. Let me plead with you to seat the heart of our God who never stops chasing and who works all of his plans together for our good and for his glory. In Psalm 16, King David says, You will not abandon my soul to the grave. You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So don't give in. Don't give up. Because look, in chapter 4, Jonah is still running from God. But God hasn't given up on him. God's still chasing him. God's still coming after him. So in my college years, I thought that God had abandoned me. Actually, in his grace, he was allowing me to come to the end of myself. And at the moment, I felt the most alone and isolated from God. He was already chasing after me. So the summer between my sophomore and my junior year of college, uh, Becca invited me to a Bible study led by some former youth leaders of hers here in town. And she said, hey, they're really great. I think you're going to like them. And me in the state that I was then thought, great, I'll believe it when I see it. So we went to the first meeting. We showed up and knocked on the door. And the leader of the ministry opened the door. And he extended his hand. And he said... Welcome to Do Lost Bible study. My name is Jason Nuttmore. This is my wife, Rachel. And Jason, who you know as our missions and single pastor, and his wife, Rachel, had just moved back to San Antonio to follow God's call to launch a Bible study at UTSA. God was already chasing after me. And it was through the ministry of Jason and Rachel that God broke my heart and began to knit it back together again. Because for the first time, I got to see the brokenness of the ugliness of my brokenness for what it was. And the weight of my self-righteous, self-centered sin crashed into me like a freight train. And I realized that I was just as condemned as the people that I'd learned to hate. And guess what? God didn't owe me anything. And yet, when Jason and Rachel spoke of God's grace... The hate and the bitterness and the insecurity that had once defined me began to melt away. You see, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. So I began to fall in love with the God who died to save a wretched runaway like me, and and something else happened that took me by surprise. I began to love my enemies too. By the time I graduated UTSA, some of the very people that I had once eyed with suspicion became my best friends, many of whom I had the opportunity to share the gospel with. So it's interesting, even though the story itself doesn't tell us how Jonah responded to God, I think we know simply because this book exists. If the events in this book actually happened, which I believe they did, then who else would be able to provide us these details other than Jonah. So I think that Jonah finally did understand. I think that the existence of this account points to Jonah's repentance. And he's offering this story to us as a challenge and an encouragement, saying, listen, listen to my story. So what is the story of Jonah? It's the story of the runaway. It's my story. And it's your story. But more importantly, it's the story of a God who is relentless in his pursuit of the lost. It's the story of a God who, while we were a long way off, came running for runaways like us. It's the story of a God who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. It's the story of a God who, breathing his last, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So if this morning you found that You're running from God and you're afraid that perhaps you're too far gone for grace. I want to tell you, you're not. Because of what Jesus has done, our sin doesn't stick to us. God has promised to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. And his forgiveness, it's a free gift that you can't earn. So whether you're a wicked Ninevite or a self-righteous Jonah, God's grace is for you. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, we cannot walk long with God before he will ask us the very same question, what about your enemies? And it's not fair that I should have to forgive my enemy. But that's the beauty of grace. It makes life not fair. That's what the gospel's all about. God hasn't dealt with us according to our sin. What we deserved was death. What we get is eternal life and the everlasting affection of God, our Savior. The only truly righteous one became judged for us. And now he offers us his righteousness as a free gift to anyone who will say, Jesus, I believe. And so those who know the forgiveness of Christ show the forgiveness of Christ. And as we begin to grasp the grace of Christ, we also begin to grow in the grace of Christ. And just like Jonah, we don't know what God is doing. We never know whose wicked hearts he's about to melt with his mercy. We don't know whose lives he's about to overturn in his grace. So we join him in his mission to turn enemies into friends. So let us look with gratitude at the grace of the cross and then with humble hands ready to receive the repentant saying just as I have been forgiven I forgive you, brother. I forgive you, sister. Church, the world is longing for the grace of the Savior. May we Be the messengers of mercy. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you don't give up on runaways like us. God, we thank you that you keep running after us. We thank you, God, that your grace is great and your mercy is mighty and you can forgive Broken sinners like us. We thank you for Jesus, whose sacrifice shows us the bigness of your love and your grace. And for the resurrection that shows us that He is who He said He was. And we can trust that we have been forgiven because that grave didn't stay closed and our Savior didn't stay dead. And Father, as we grow in grace, I pray, God, that you would show us how to love our enemies. Show us how to love those people that hate us back. Show us how to be like Jesus. Father, I pray for this church, for these people. I pray, that, God, that we would go boldly into the unknown ahead of us. But with you and your love as a solid foundation, God, may we be ministers of the message of mercy. May we offer forgiveness for those who don't think they deserve it. And God, I just pray that you would show us that because we also don't deserve your grace and mercy, we must love others. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks for worshiping with us today Wayside. We love you. Go in peace.